seminary and the professor asked us, how many here want to go to heaven? Man, we all raised our hands. And then he asked, how many want to go today? Every hand went down. We were young in our 20s and 30s. We had our whole lives ahead of us. While we were looking forward to heaven, we weren't looking forward to necessarily that day. Today, if I was asked that question, I think I would keep my hand up a little bit longer than I did that day. D.L. Moody said, soon you're going to read in the newspapers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't believe it for a moment. I'll be more alive now than I ever was. God has created us with a sense that this life, the here and now, isn't all there is, that there must be more. Ecclesiastes 3.11, he has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into men's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put eternity in our hearts. Instinctively, even the atheist senses and knows that, that there must be more than this. C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, then the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Doing a series on developing a Christian worldview. We're looking at some important doctrines that shape and form and inform that worldview. So we're going to look at heaven today. And I want to use the question and answer format like I did last week, as if we were having a conversation. And these are some questions I know I've been asked or have encountered myself regarding heaven. So I hope these are questions that you too are asking. The first question is, where is heaven? When Bible writers talk about the heavens, they're they're referencing different layers in the sky. In the ancient world, the heavens were thought of as three heavens. The first heaven is the lower atmosphere of the earth where the birds fly and the rain falls. And then there was a second heaven, which would be where the sun, moon and stars are, you know, outer space. But then in the ancient mind, there was a third heaven, the highest heaven, where God dwelt. Paul even mentions it in 2 Corinthians 12, 2. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Heaven is a literal place, not a state of mind or even the state of West Virginia, as beautiful as it is. Some say heaven is north or heaven is up, up there. While others say heaven is around us, just in a different dimension that we cannot see. But one day, the Bible says heaven will be on earth. And that may be a new concept for you. Revelation 21, 1 to 3. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So eventually heaven comes down. To a new earth. Second question Who will be in heaven? 
Well, the Bible addresses that in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, which we just read about in Revelation 21, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So what do we see there? Angels, uh, spiritual heavenly beings, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, and the righteous spirits of people made just by God. Will animals be in heaven? I think so. The Bible mentions horses in heaven. Revelation 19, verse 11 and verse 14 talk about Christ returning on a white horse and the armies of heaven with him. What about pets? I'm not sure about pets. The, the Bible is silent on it, so I don't know. Maybe. I hope so. But I don't know. The only people who will be there will be people who have received Christ as Savior. John 1.12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Man, that sounds exclusive. Isn't that exclusive? Yes, it is. How could people who hate God, who want nothing to do with God, be with him for all eternity? God did something to make it possible that all people could be with him. He sent his son Jesus to die for their sins. They must be born again. You must be born again to go to heaven. Jesus answered him, John 3, 3. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Those are Jesus's words, not mine. So what about babies, young children who die young? What about special needs folks, which happens to be James's question this week? Or how about those who have never heard? Before I say something about each of those three, let me say this. God is just. God is righteous. God is fair. God is loving. Psalm 145, 17, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. God told Abraham that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. Abraham was concerned about that. Even though these cities were very wicked and he knew it, his nephew Lot lived in Sodom. And so Abraham begins to barter with God for souls. He started at 50 and then 45, I think, and then 40, then 30, then 20, then 10. And Abraham said, far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And God said, I won't. I won't destroy this evil, wicked place if there's ten righteous people in it. God is just and fair. He won't make a mistake in judging. So we can commit unsaved loved ones to him and pray for them and share our faith. All right. David believed that he would be reunited with his baby that died. Second Samuel twelve twenty three. But now he is dead. The baby. 
Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? No. I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Does he mean merely I'll go to him in the grave? Or does he mean something more than that? I'll go to him where he is and I'll see him again. Stillbirths, aborted babies. I believe they're with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.14 For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. There's a sanctifying effect of godly parents on children. Psalm 116.6 in the King James Version The Lord preserveth the simple. I was brought low and he helped me. Could the simple be MRDD, folks? God has revealed himself to all humankind in Romans chapter 1, it says, so that no one is without excuse. Those who've never heard the gospel, I believe, will be judged by their conscience. I base that on Romans 2, 14 to 16. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, God is fair. No one will receive injustice. Skeptics are always pointing out, well, what about the people who've never heard like the pygmies of Africa? And my thought to that is, are you really truly concerned about the state of the soul of the pygmies in Africa? I don't think so. I think that's a smokescreen. Here's a third question. When will I go to heaven and what will happen there? So the when question is either at death, if you're saved, if you're born again, or at the second coming of Christ. So we needn't fear death. The psalmist said, you know, Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I think back to my late aunt who lived her entire life. She was a born-again Christian, lived her entire life in fear. It's so sad. Everything made her afraid, but especially the fear of death. And my dad and my mom, when she was alive, and myself, Kathy, we would try to encourage her. You're, you're, you're a believer, Aunt Hilda. You're, but she just couldn't get past the fact that, no, I may not make it. Death is like falling asleep in your parents' car when you were a kid and waking up in your own bed. How did you get to your bed? Last thing you remember, you were in the car. Well, obviously, your parents put you in there. So I think of death as similar. You, you'll one day fall asleep and wake up in the arms of Jesus, like Stephen did in Acts 7.59. As they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I think if, even if you had a pain, a lot of pain, before death, I think the moment of death itself, you won't feel pain. When you die... Your body goes into the ground and your spirit goes to heaven to be with Jesus. The definition of death biblically is separation. Our spirit is separated from our body at death. And second death, we're separated from God for all eternity. 
Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. The Bible describes two judgments, one for the believer, one for the unbeliever. We looked at the unbeliever judgment last week when we considered hell. What about the believer's judgment? That's called the bema, or the judgment seat of Christ. The Bible says we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive rewards. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, bema, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. That's why our actions are so important as a Christian. Our works will be tried by fire. 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Good deeds last for eternity. Bad deeds will be burned up. You don't lose your soul, but you lose your reward. I think there will be tears in heaven. It says so in Revelation 21.4. 21:4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And this is in heaven. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain any more for the former things that passed away. Will our tears be shed at this beam of judgment when we see all the opportunities that we had, maybe to share our faith, to give, to love, to serve, but we didn't do it. And we are sad at that moment. And then finally Christ wipes away our tears. We're rewarded eternally for our actions, our thoughts, our words. And those rewards are crowns. The Bible describes several. The first, the crown of rejoicing, is given to those who have won people to Christ. That's why it's so important to share your faith. You'll be so glad that you did as the Lord blesses you for doing so. It mentions the crown of righteousness given to those looking forward to the second coming. If you're looking forward to the second coming today, I think we all can receive that crown. The third is the crown of life given to martyrs who have a special blessing for giving their life for Christ. And the crown of glory for leaders. And the Bible says we'll cast our crowns at his feet. We'll also receive praise from God. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I think that praise will be Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't you want to hear that? The Lord say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. The Bible says we'll have responsibility to rule and reign with Christ and to judge angels. First Corinthians 6, 3. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? We'll have meaningful work. I truly believe it. 
in the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. He says, even though the Bible doesn't tell us much about what we will do, we know there will be a never ending universe to run. I think God will also allow us to help him in all that he does. There may be cities to build and clouds to paint and worlds to watch and stars to tend and projects so high and huge and amazing that we can't even picture them in our minds. There will always be new things to see, new places to go, new friends to laugh and run with. If you explored a new planet with a new friend every day, you wouldn't run out of planets or friends in millions and millions of years. Finding things to do will be no problem at all. Between worshiping and working and resting and exploring, the problem may be knowing what to do next. The first and best thing will always be praising our good God for taking us to his forever home. Some nice thoughts there by Randy Alcorn on what we'll do in heaven. What will heaven be like? That's my fourth question. What will heaven be like? Like the song said, beyond what we can imagine. First Corinthians 2, 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Our imaginations are so puny, we can barely comprehend it. Some people picture heaven is going to be white and sterile like an operating room in a hospital. Or like a million year long boring church service. It's going to be like earth, just millions of times better. I think C.S. Lewis captures this best in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle. He says, you may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of sea of green or a green valley that wound its way along the mountains. And in the wall of that room opposite to the window, there may have been a looking glass. As you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia And the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. The unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling, he stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Beauty, adventure, worship, fellowship beyond our wildest imaginations. Heaven, of course, is a place where there's no death. We'll have glorified bodies there. I am so much looking forward to my new resurrected body back. Complete perfection. No sinful thoughts. Pure joy. All of our needs met. Living forever in peace and harmony and unity. Fellowship with God and people. Heaven will be a city. 
says so in Revelation 21, 10 to 16. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates and on the north three gates and on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. It's a city of pure gold. Even the streets are gold. And the gates are solid pearls. The city is 1,500 miles squared. If you can picture that in your mind, it's one huge cube, one giant holy of holies. No need for a temple there because God is its temple. Heaven is also described as a garden in the next chapter of Revelation. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city also on either Side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no lamp. Of light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and He and they will reign forever and ever. Such a beautiful picture of the Garden of Eden revised. God's original intended place for human beings to dwell, the garden, will be made new again. No need for the sun, because God's light lights up the place. There's a river that flows through it and trees, including the tree of life. It's nature at its best, pure delight. A fifth question, a more practical question. How does the fact of heaven impact me or affect me now? What difference does it make? So what that there's a heaven? Karl Marx said Christianity is the opiate of the people and pie in the sky. What he meant to say by that is just delude the people with lies that there's a heaven for the poor masses that they will believe for an afterlife. So you can take advantage of him in the current life. But the hope of heaven motivates me now. How? Here's the first way. It motivates me to share my faith more. Hell isn't the only reason to witness. Heaven is a better reason if you are going to heaven, would not you want the people around you, family, friends, neighbors, classmates, co-workers to go there too? Secondly, the hope of heaven impacts your stewardship. Think about this. If life here was all there was, then you might as well just spend your money like there's no tomorrow. 
But because there's a heaven, you have new priorities. You want to give to the church of Jesus Christ, to missions, to folks that are expanding the kingdom of God and getting people saved. You want to help other people with your resources, knowing that you can't take it with you. It's just temporary. Have you considered the church or charities in your will? Thirdly, you'll want to serve. Because you realize, I find joy in helping others. This is why I'm created. This was my purpose. The gifts God has given me to help other people. Fourthly, you'll see hardships differently. Because you know that life here isn't all there is. You know that bad times will end. That your suffering, whatever you're going through, isn't meaningless. God will use that hard time to bring you closer to him. And fifthly, you'll worry less. Little things won't bother you so much. They'll just slide more off your back. Because you're gaining a heavenly perspective. You're trusting God more. Colossians 3, 1 to 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. So I'm shifting my focus from my problems here to heaven. And that doesn't mean I'm no earthly good anymore. I think it makes me better for earth. And remember this. Nothing can possibly separate you from the love of God. Not sickness, not tragedy, not even death. When it's time for you to go and God calls you home, you'll be ready and you'll join with millions of people already around the throne of God, worshiping him forever and ever. It's worth any sacrifice you can make now. My final question is, how do I get there? Which is the most important question of all. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. The gospel message is really quite simple. You can't earn it by working hard and being good enough. You only can receive it. The way to heaven is a person. Jesus really is the stairway to heaven. So I believe in him. Now imagine you have a big brother, and he's already up in the tree, way up in the tree where the tree fort is. And you're a little guy, and you want to get up there too, but you can't get up there. He says, come on up, climb up here where I am. But you just can't do it. So he climbs down the tree and puts you on his back and climbs back up the tree to the tree fort. So you are now with your big brother. That's what God has done for us in Jesus. We couldn't climb up to heaven on our own by being good enough. So he sent his son to come down here and put us on his back, as it were. And now we can be with him. John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That's our topic for next Sunday. And will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I think this is my favorite passage in the Bible on heaven. 
I just love John 14, 1 to 3. And I'm so comforted that Jesus came to take me where he is. He's coming back. I want to close by telling you a story that's told by Ruthanna Metzger. And I read it in the book uh, called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I really recommend this book. If you ever want to take a deep dive into heaven, this is a pretty thick book. But it's, a, it's an excellent book on heaven if you're interested. Ruthanna Metzger was a quite well-known singer in the Seattle, Washington area. So she was asked by a very rich man in Seattle to sing at his daughter's wedding. And so she did. And the reception was held on the top floor of Seattle's Columbia Tower. Her and her husband rode the elevator up and the elevator doors opened and they looked out and saw waiters in tuxedos and a giant big ballroom with all this exotic foods from all over and all these interesting drinks. So they walked up to the desk and spoke to the maitre d. And he said, what's your name? And she said, Ruthanna Metzger and my husband, Roy. And he looked down the list and he said, I don't find your name on the list. So he said, spell your name. So she spelled her name and he looked again and said, I don't see your name here. You can't stay. You have to go. And she said, but I can't. That's impossible. I sang at the wedding. He said, no, your name isn't here. You can't stay. You have to go. So they got back on the elevator. And as they're riding down, her husband looked at her and said, what happened? And she said, when the invitations came for the reception, I was too busy to fill them out. So I never did. I just assumed they would let me in because I was the singer. Well, she assumed wrong. Revelation 20, verse 15 says, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Sadly, throughout the ages, people have been too busy to respond to God's RSVP. They assumed God would let them into heaven. Of course, they were such a good person. They had done such mighty works for God. I say to you today, don't miss God's wedding banquet that he's prepared in honor of his son. Fill out the RSVP. Believe on his son, Jesus Christ. Receive him today. And then Revelation twenty-two seventeen will be for you. The spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to ask right now if there's anyone here this morning that needs to come either up to the altar or by raising their hand. They're saying, Lord, I come to you right now. I'm not sure I'm saved. I'm not sure I filled out the RSVP. So if anyone here is ready to do that this morning by raising their hand or coming down front, you can do that. Does anyone need to make that commitment this morning? Lord, I thank you so much for heaven. It is a great hope of Christians, of seeing your face, of being with you. And I'm so thankful that Jesus is coming back to take us there to be with you. We put our faith and trust in him alone for salvation. We're not trusting in our works. We know we do good works, which you've appointed us to do. Those are our rewards, but not to earn our way to heaven. Lord, I thank you for your word, which encourages us and gives us hope that 
Today you comfort us and give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen.